We're here to study God's Word. So take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Now, in, it's in the Old Testament, and if you found the, uh, the Psalms, turn back a few more books, a little bit closer to the beginning, and you'll come to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're in the middle of this, uh, this series called Rebuilding. Life Tools from Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah, as you might know, was originally one book. And now it's been split into two. And so as we journey through these books, we are in Nehemiah chapter 1. By the way, the man Nehemiah, his name means the Lord comforts. And I like that. I like that a lot. Because I think that we have a lot of people, not only in our congregation, but people that we know. In our extended families, our friends, who need to know that God comforts them. And Nehemiah happened to live in a time when the people of God needed an extra measure of his comfort. Because they were in a period of distress. Here's the backstory. Many decades before the setting of today's story in Nehemiah 1, Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians, and many of the Israelites there were taken off into captivity, and they lived there uh, for a few generations. Well, after a while, Persia, the the Persian Empire, defeated the Babylonian Empire, and now Persia had all these captives. What do we do with them? Well, the Persian kings decided, let's let them go back. Go back to their homeland, go back to their home city of Jerusalem, and we'll let them rebuild the temple. And that's sort of an Ezra story in the previous book. But you need to remember this. The rebuilding of the temple is not quite the same as the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. The rebuilding of the temple, yes, it allowed them to worship God again. But until the rebuilding of the walls was complete... The people of Jerusalem would always be under the constant threat of attack. So enter the character Nehemiah. Nehemiah lived about a thousand miles away. He lived in the capital city of of, uh, Persia. And he was actually a servant to the Persian king Artaxerxes. And this is what happened in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We read the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. And so this is Nehemiah saying this, or writing this. During the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned. Let me ask you a question. What is your go-to response when you hear distressing news? What do you do? You know you do something. Some of us get mad. Want to hit something. Some of us just start to cry. Some of us just sort of grit our teeth and we're going to bear through this one way or the other. What do you do when things go wrong? You're having a perfectly fine day and you either get news that something goes wrong to someone else that you love or, or it goes wrong for you directly. 
What do you do? Well, here's what Nehemiah did in verse 4. He writes, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. Now, we're about to read Nehemiah's prayer, but I would just help you pause and realize that Nehemiah is about to pray for success. He's about to pray for success. And this is how you pray for success. First of all, you acknowledge God's nature and God's greatness. He said in verse 5, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands. Notice that Nehemiah reminds God of his nature, reminds God of his greatness. And that might sound, sound sort of silly to you. Why would God need reminding of anything? Well, God doesn't. God doesn't need to be reminded of anything. When we acknowledge God's greatness in prayer to God, we're not telling God anything new, but what we're doing is we're acknowledging that we know it. We know that God is great. And he says that he is the God of the heavens. This is a fantastic term because it's a recognition that God, the God that he's talking to, is a God who's high and lifted up. He's a God who is transcendent, who is above us. He is beyond us. He's beyond our comprehension. He's beyond our power. He is the God of the heavens. There are other times when it's perfectly uh, all right, if you will, to acknowledge God as a friend. God is someone who walks alongside you. God who is someone who is intimately in love with you. But in this prayer, Nehemiah wants to make sure that he humbles himself the best he can before God. And one way to humble yourself before God is to acknowledge God's incredible greatness. He's the God of the heavens. He is the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him. God keeps his covenant. God keeps his covenant. What about us? Well, sometimes we don't do such a good job. And so when the covenant is broken between God and humanity, it's never God's fault. It's never God's doing. It's ours. But God keeps his covenant with those who love God, those who keep his commands, And then, after he acknowledges God's greatness, he asks God, hear my prayer. Verse 6. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer, that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. He says, God, let your eyes be open. Let your ears be attentive to hear, he calls himself, your servant. To hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night. And I'm not praying for myself. I'm praying for your people. I'm praying for the people of God. For their sake, God. Listen to me. For their sake, hear my prayer. Because I know you love them. You've called them out. 
And then he says in verse 6, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. He acknowledges the truth about his sin before God. Notice that Nehemiah has yet to ask God for anything other than to hear his prayer. He hasn't asked God for success yet. In fact, that'll come at the end of this prayer. All he's done now is he has acknowledged before God his truthful standing before God. That God is great and he is humble. That God is holy and he is a sinner. Not only has he sinned, his father's family has sinned, the entire nation, in fact, has sinned against God. And so in verse 7, he continues, he says, We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are faithful, I will scatter, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Well, isn't that exactly what happened? God's people were unfaithful, and he scattered them. Verse 9, he's quoting God again, God's words to Moses. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. You can see where Nehemiah is going with this. God, you promised Moses. Remember what you said to Moses, that you would gather us back together and bring us back to Jerusalem. God, that's what needs to happen if we would be faithful to you. So he says in verse 11, Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today. And grant him compassion in the presence of this man. Nehemiah knows what he's about to do. Nehemiah is about to go stand before the most powerful man in the entire world, the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah is going to ask for an unthinkable request. Would you mind... King Artaxerxes, if I went back to Jerusalem and built that city into a great fortress that could withstand a mighty army, perhaps even yours, that's going to be the request. But before he would ever have the audacity to ask that of King Artaxerxes, he needs his heavenly father to be on his side in this. He asked God to give him success in going before this man. And then we have this final statement in verse 11. It's almost as an aside. He writes, At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Well, now we know how he's going to get to stand before King Artaxerxes. He was the king's cupbearer. What does the cupbearer do? Well, the king's cupbearer was the guy who drank the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned before it was given to the king. 
And so every day, your life would be in danger. Every meal, your life would be in danger if you were the cupbearer and you thought the king had some enemies that might want to kill him that way. And so you had to sip the wine, make sure it wasn't poison. How would you know if it's poison? Well, you die. That's how you know. And uh, then the king gets a different cupbearer. But the cupbearer is also a very important, uh, very uh, much a position of honor and power because he has regular close proximity to the king. He had more knowledge, Nehemiah did, than most people did about the king and about the kingdom. And so he was one of the king's closest advisors, actually, one of the king's closest supporters. The king's not going to make someone a cupbearer who is not uh, friendly to him. And so it wasn't an accident that Nehemiah, this Jewish guy, who's nothing more than a servant there in a foreign land, happened to become the king's cupbearer. There's another indication of the sovereign hand of God, putting people where God wants them to be for just the right time. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we continue the story. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad? When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah was fearful because he knew his, he, he was putting his very life in danger. Number one, by speaking to the king freely, but also by being sad in front of the king. It wasn't unheard of for kings to put to death those that came before him who were sad. And so... Nehemiah was very much on a human level in danger, but on the other hand, this was a divine appointment, and God's hand was upon him. Verse 4, so the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. Now, by the way, when Nehemiah gave the king a definite time, it means one of two things. He either just made up an answer, or, more likely, he had prayed through this plan, and he had an idea in mind. And so he told the king, he gave the king a definite time. Verse 7, I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River, so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my request, for the gracious hand of my God was on me." I love what Nehemiah did here. As soon as Nehemiah saw that the hand of God was on him and that he was going to get some favor from the king, he kept asking for more. You ever have that teenager at your house that asks you for a little bit of money? Well, Dad, i got to fill up my car, too. 
Well, Dad, I got, I got to take this girl on the date, too, and asking for more and asking for more. Well, Nehemiah, he was in a good position now. He was asking for more, and the king gave him everything he wanted. The king gave him the letters for safe passage, gave him letters to use the timber for all of these things. And this is a really good way to sort of end the first part of this story for Nehemiah. However, it doesn't end exactly like that. Because in verses 9 and 10 we read this. Nehemiah said, I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and the cavalry with me. And then verse 10. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. Listen, the first part of this story ends with a foreboding foreshadowing of problems to come. And even when the hand of God is on you, even when everything is going your way, Be aware, there will be obstacles. There may even be opposition to what you're doing. So many of us, at the first sign of opposition or obstacles, we throw up our hands and say, God, I thought you were with me. God, I thought thought you were going to bless me in this. And we give up on the plan of God. The calling that God has on our lives Because we face a little bit of opposition. Listen, when God called me to be a pastor on July 28, 1987, and I answered that call, fortunately, I knew enough at the time that there would be opposition from time to time. There would be hardships, there would be obstacles. But when the calling of God is on you, even in the worst of times, you remember that calling. Nehemiah knew God had called him to a specific task. And he was not going to stop simply because of some obstacles or some opposition. I don't know exactly what God has called you to do. God has called some of you ladies To be a godly mother, a godly wife. God has called some of you in the workplace to be a godly employee or an employer. God may even have a different type of call on your life. A call that you have yet to answer to be a pastor, to be a missionary. And I know that God has called every single man here to be a godly man. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, no matter what your situation is, God has called you to himself to model yourself after him. When you face opposition, when you face obstacles, you need to learn to power through that and live out your calling. That's what we're going to discover Nehemiah did, and that's what we need to do as well. And so today... If you have an idea of what God is wanting to do with your life and you want God to be, to grant you success, 
then I would ask you to respond to him with a prayer like Nehemiah.